Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I am your host as always, Steve Hall. And today we have another Q&A with Mike Isretel from Renaissance Periodization. Uh, so we'll get straight into those questions. Um, so first question is from Roberto Riccardiella, who has asked about, I know there was this post by Tiago on Facebook about progressive overload. And there was a really good back and forth between Mike and Tiago. And Roberto's asked perhaps elaborations on the differentiation between overload and progressive overload uh, would be handy for him, he said, as Mike got into a respected debate on this matter back and forth in great detail with Tiago. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I guess that was a while ago, but it would be great to kind of, yeah, fathom that out a little bit more again. Yeah, sure. So it's, it's not that, uh, it's not terribly difficult delineation, and it's um, it, it'll be understood pretty intuitively, I think, especially if you can visualize it kind of in your mind's eye. So, you know, if we have like this whole spectrum here, this entire screen of mine, if it is the, um, you know, the entire amount of stimulus that you can provide in training, there's going to be a whole lot here at the bottom, maybe the bottom two thirds or three quarters, where it's just not hard enough, be that enough volume or enough intensity or enough relative intensity, like proximity to failure, it's just not hard enough to stimulate any meaningful gains whatsoever. And it doesn't really disrupt any systems, it doesn't disrupt homeostasis, right? Uh, For example, for endurance training, you wouldn't call going for a walk to the drugstore and back endurance training. And there's nothing about the walk that it's not, it's neither high enough duration or high enough velocity nor disruptive enough to physical systems to count as overloading. So there's a bunch of volumes, intensities, and other sorts of difficulties which are below the overload threshold. Right around, you know, this area right here from here to the top, I hope the screen looks the same for you as it does for me. Otherwise, I, I can see okay. your finger moving. <laughs> okay, that's good. So... You know, from from here to the top of the screen, or, or sort of, so to speak, um, once things get difficult, there's that's what was was called uh, the overload threshold. This line here. Now, it's really not a line in reality. It's more like a spectrum, right? So, for example, if we'd say that, you know, weights uh, lifted to elicit hypertrophy with no metabolite, uh, uh, you know, effects being considered, what is the minimum amount of weight? Well, 60% 1RM is usually that guideline given, right? But can we really say that 57.5 is not at all stimulative and 62.5 is 100% stimulative? No, but it, it's kind of like a quick rise in the effect. Like, you know, get much, we don't get much, we don't get much, and like it's in the 50s somewhere, it starts to go up, and then in the 70s it really peaks, and then it flattens out after that, right? So 60 is kind of the middle of that zone. So, you know, if, you, if you're doing a, uh, doing a graph, it's kind of one of those shaded areas. Like it's white, 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 gray, and then black, right? So anything above that threshold is overloading. It is disruptive to systems, and it makes them meaningfully adapt. And all goes all the way up to what we would call maximal overload, which is the most you can physically do in whatever parameter, the most volume or the most intensity. Really easy to talk about this in a repetitions and reserve concept, reps from failure. What's the maximum amount of overload you can do in any one set? Well, to failure, concentric failure. That's it. Anything you know uh, below four reps away from failure is probably not in that threshold in most conditions. Anything below six is almost certainly not. But anything you know three, two, one, and failure is within the overload threshold. Yeah. So to use that uh, example pretty well, any training that occurs with four uh, reps in reserve or less is overloading. Period because it is within the overload threshold. However, is it progressively overloading? Well, progression requires an examination of past states and future states to determine progression. So we can't say we walked anywhere unless someone was like, yeah, I saw him earlier there and now he's here, otherwise we might just be making shit up. So progressive overload is when you meet two conditions. One, your jumps are all within that overload spectrum. They, so you, for example, week one, you start four away from fail, then week two is three away, week three is two away, and so on and so forth. And also, you get deeper and deeper, closer and closer to maximal overload. That's the progressive part. So if you come in and train fucking hard and that's all you know did you overload yeah probably yeah but did you progressively overload well we'd have to see how hard you trained last time so for example if you train 
maximally over here. And then next week you train still in the overload threshold, but less hard. Are you not overloading at all? No, you still get sore. You still get tired. You still disrupt systems. You still engage in stimulus and you still benefit from that stimulus by adapting. So it's still overloading because it's within a threshold, but it is not progressively overloading. Uh, progressive overload supplies the best gains, but just overloading, even if you start from the top and go boop, 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 and end your cycle at the easiest, that'll still result in gains, just not as many. Because your training's still, on average, pretty hard. It just gets easier as you go. It's certainly not the best way to do things, but it is a way to do things. Um, that's the difference between overload and progressive overload, if I had to de so delineate those two concepts. And of course, progressive is the one we want most of the time. Mm -hmm. But I guess what you're saying is you wouldn't be able to train the set, even if it was in that intensity threshold, if you train the same way all the time throughout your career, without that progression at all, you're not going to see any progress. Well, so if you train, so, so, uh, so there's some technicalities here, right? So that band, it, uh, it moves. Right. Yeah. As you continue to provide the same stimulus, the band moves up and cool. out and away. So at some point, like three or four sessions later, if you did the same thing, let's say you did a novel stimulus that was pretty hard. It was at the top of your overload spectrum. The first session, it would be maximally stimulating. The second session, if you repeated it, it would be not so bad. Third, fourth, et cetera. By the fifth or sixth session, you would literally just probably be below your overload threshold in, in reality. So what does that mean? That means that any successive stimuli there without any progression are no longer overloading. So the good idea is to stay out of that curve instead of bumping into situations where like, oops, it's too easy. You plan on making it difficult, yeah. deload, plan on making it difficult to stay in that band all the time. So yeah, if you do the same stuff, absolutely, sooner or later, it just won't be overloading anymore. Perfect. No, yeah, I think a lot of people forget about the adaptions that take place. And I think this is a good reason why, well, it seems like a good application of why kind of the delete and replace concept can work in our favor in that as that adaption curve gets harder and harder to chase, we can kind of bring in something new where we aren't that adapted to it. And so we yep. can have that kind of progression again. Totally. And we can't do that too fast because then we don't milk out all the adaptations yeah. from the other curves and it's too quick of change and you end up chasing really transient gains. But every several mesocycles, probably a good idea to switch things up and, and get refreshment of those curves. Mm -hmm. No, I think you explained that really well because I think a lot of people kind of hear about like overloading workouts and they kind of get that they think it's a progress progression, whereas that's kind of like the next time. So no, totally. that, that's perfect. Um, he had a second part. I don't think it's related to that first part, but he said, when we diet, we want to prevent muscle loss. However, post-diet, it's often said we can gain back the lean tissue, <coughs> sorry, the lean tissue lost quickly due to muscle memory. So he's saying, could we just diet harder? And kind of, I guess that's quite a broad question. Um, can we diet harder? Is there kind of time periods we can do that for and expect it to be okay is there times when it's not a good idea um due to kind of the muscle memory effect and gaining that back yeah definitely so that's one of those situations where the direct relationship is interesting and good to be considered but there's also some ancillary relationships that develop there that in our attempt to do something we're literally checking off uh, and kind of fiddling with other systems and we have to worry about them as well it's kind of like asking the question of like can you you know if you have a cockpit and you have a rocket can you ride the rocket down the street at 800 miles an hour yeah you know if the cockpit's properly equipped you can you're going to kill everyone on the street and blow up all the houses they go oh yeah I guess so the rocket's fine, you're fine, but you can consider everyone else, right? So a similar kind of idea. So when we're thinking about doing a, uh, so, so really the question is, can we do a diet that exceeds the usual sort of 1% per week weight loss recommendation for some length of time, and because we can um, rebound our muscle relatively quickly, uh, then it's okay because uh, you know we don't make any sort of net system-based losses, and we can build on top of them really quickly. There's a couple of considerations. Um, if we diet super duper hard, and we um, end up really becoming sensitive to future muscle mass gains. That's really good because then we can use the diet to gain new muscle. 
if we diet and we use basically piss away most of that extra sensitivity on regaining old losses, even if they're easy, we still piss away some of that sensitivity. Not the best way to do it. Right, So you want as much muscle at the end of a diet as possible because you don't want to have to regain anything because anytime you gain, you're on the clock for how long you have to gain or how much you have to gain until the gains start to become mostly fat. You want to use that to gain as much new muscle as possible. Where this is not as much of a concern is for individuals who aren't super concerned with their muscularity but are interested in long-term weight management and weight loss. For them, you can burn them pretty hard and then stabilize them, and during the restabilization, during that maintenance phase, they're going to, you know, which will last months for them, they're going to gain back all the muscle they lost probably, as long as they're weight training, et cetera, and they'll, they're going to be okay. So, but for, for people using uh, diets for a cyclical approach to potentiate further muscle mass gains, I think that there's a danger there of losing muscle to the extent that even rapid regain of the muscle is time kind of wasted that you could be gaining new muscle, right? Yeah. Um, that the, the combination of a high amount of nutrients and a high amount of disruption, you know, can, it, it can you know, get satellite cell proliferation, et cetera. But remember, satellite cell proliferation doesn't really start to happen until you push myonuclear domains to some extent. And if you spent two or three weeks regaining myonuclear domain space, you're not pushing any satellite cell in, uh, incorporation. So mm -hmm. there, now this is all, all highly theoretical, but it's backed by some, some pretty decent physiological understanding. It's just like basically you wouldn't bet on, on this working super well. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, there were some problems um, doing this. Um, I was actually uh, rereading an old Lyle McDonald article about the P ratio um, and he mentioned that, you know, if you, um, diet, you know, pretty extremely to get lean, then you gain a lot of fat on the way back up, yeah. uh, because you've primed yourself for fat gains. Um, the evidence he presented for that was, uh, in, in my estimation, uh, confusing, uh, in the sense that it wasn't very relevant. It was the Minnesota yeah. starvation experiment, which is don't train with weights. So it's kind of like, well, fuck, you know, training with weights is what regains you all that muscle. Um, so nobody ever said starving was going to repotentiate lean mass gains. That's completely insane. But if you train with weights while starving and then you train with weights after starving, you'll probably gain a whole lot of muscle because of the low calorie conditions and you'll be quite sensitive to it. So I'm not so sure I buy into all of the arguments for, well, right after a diet, you got to maintain for a while and, and, and et cetera. But I think I buy into some of them enough uh, to, to say the following, that if you do a long diet, you go really hard with the loss, like way too hard. You're probably ticking off some of those mechanisms of reduced hormone production and enhanced capacity for fat gain that they're going to come in pretty strong as well as the muscle rebound ones. Now, I think if you've kept all of your muscle, you're on the net balance on the positive if you start gaining right after you're done cutting. But if you've lost some of your muscle, now you have to fight those factors that have uh, basically predisposed you to more fat gain, and you've got to regain lost muscle at the same time? Fuck, that's a big deal. So I think that this limits the potential applicability of rapid fat loss to shorter periods of time, maybe two to four weeks, where you can gain maybe 1.5 or lose 1.5% of your tissue at a time. Not long enough to really start to irritate those pro-obesity mechanisms, yeah. um, not long to cause a ton of fatigue and all this stuff. And if you lose some myonuclear domain during that time, it's not going to be much, and you probably will get it back within a week and then go back up um, Although you should still try to to resist muscle loss as much yeah. as possible the entire time. Um, on the other hand, if you're a bodybuilder and you're doing a show, clearly you want zero muscle loss because nobody gives a shit as to how much you're going to regain. It's whatever you can put on stage right at that very moment. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, perfect answer. And to touch on the point on, I know people have talked about, and I know Kyle Lyle doesn't like the idea of kind of the. A lot of the older school bodybuilders talk about like the muscle rebound effect post show, and they kind of they kind of um, glorify it in a way. Like it sounds like really positive, and the the way I've heard about it from you, like the fact we are in a very sensitive position to grow muscle after a diet, as long as obviously you put the caveat there that you haven't lost too much muscle and you're not hugely diet fatigued. In the state of a uh, bodybuilder who kind of is in that very lean position where some of their hormones might not be in the best position. 
is that the hormones being in that position are due to the fact a lot of the time they've dieted for so long to get there and so they have a lot of diet fatigue or is that just a consequence of their low body fat levels or would you say kind of it's a combination of that it's, it's, probably, it's probably a combination, but it's mostly due to the former, the long diet to get there. Because yeah. naturally lean people, or if you're used to being lean, your hormones are just fine usually. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's kind of a big myth that like low body fats are unhealthy. You know what's funny is people say that shit. It's just like thinly veiled like uh, prejudice basically is when people yeah. look at bodybuilders and they can't be healthy. Like you have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. You just made that up. What, what you meant to say was I hate how that looks. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, just being lean isn't super terrible for any of this stuff. But the process of getting there, if it is very tumultuous, can be. Um, Again, I'm not convinced that we have the data to say that regaining in that situation is a really bad idea that makes us more prone to fat gain than muscle gain. There's certainly no direct evidence that I'm aware of to that extent. Um, and starvation studies, it only goes so far as they don't involve weight training. Um, I think that obviously for bodybuilders using hormones, a lot of the stuff is sort of irrelevant. Yeah. Um, and there's a psychological factor there where the ability, the attempt to maintain after um, a really hard diet is, uh, you know, really, really tough. Um, so maybe just a slower gain than would be usual. Maybe it'd be a better solution for that. So I think that's where I would fall on that, uh, on that one. Only because I, I bring it up because I recently, it's not come out yet. Um, it might be by the time we, uh, t by the time this comes out, but I spoke to Peter Fitchin and I know you're aware of his kind of studies and they talked about natural bodybuilders and their kind of hormones not being in a healthy state till like four, six months post-show, um, which has then come, made people draw the conclusion of you shouldn't be seeking necessarily, like you're not going to gain, you're not in a prime position to gain because your hormones aren't in that prime position. And what I was trying to fathom was, is this because those studies are done on people who have dieted for so long to get to that point and they've got such high diet fatigue that they like you said they aren't in that best position or is it just because they're low body fat because for someone like myself right now i have a show in four weeks i feel absolutely fine um i don't feel like my testosterone and those sort of markers would be in a terrible way um and i feel like i probably would see a productive kind of post mass after a contest whereas i can see if someone had dieted for such long periods of time that afterwards they just they probably wouldn't even be able to train productively do you think there's have i kind of explained myself well enough there yeah I'm not entirely sure what we're supposed to do with information like that. What is it that you're supposed to do for four to six months after a bodybuilding show in that case? I, I, I the solution is still regaining that that fat, so uh, or even regaining. So just so, it so just mass up the then. Solution. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 yeah. It's one of those like yeah, hormones aren't optimal. How do you get them optimal? I mean, I can understand the solution being maintain. But um, maintaining it such low body fats, et cetera, may present its own problems. Um, psychologically, it's devastating. Um, and some of the hormones are not really much of a concern. Um, some of the hormones are positive. Insulin sensitivity is sky high. That's a really good thing. Uh, testosterone might not be sky high, but I'm not really aware of any sorts of depressions of testosterone that last months unless we're talking about overtrained states. Yeah. And some people do probably get overtrained after bodybuilding shows. And I don't really particularly care about those people because they're doing shit completely wrong. And they're literally just backwards. Mm -hmm. So um, then you have a medical condition more or less. And you know, this isn't, we don't have to factor that into periodization. If you fucked up and fell off the map. Um, so, and then for other hormones like uh, hunger hormones, satiety hormones, well, they can help you eat more food. They just have to be controlled psychologically so that you don't go overboard, but I'm not so sure that those hormones necessarily just activate fat gain at the expense of any muscle gain whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I, I do have to say that the post-show rebound is over-exaggerated. Yeah. A lot of times it's conflated because you're still lean and you just poof up on glycogen and on uh, water and you look jacked and you think, oh my God, this is new muscle. I don't think that's the case. Mm -hmm. But I think that because you are lean, because you're more insulin sensitive, because your muscles haven't been growing for so long, you're primed pretty decently for more growth. You're also primed pretty decently for more fat gain. So that's why you have to eat well and not go overboard and 
train pretty hard, have high volumes of training to partition those nutrients where they need to go. Is there an argument potentially of several weeks of like either slower gaining, which I'd be a fan of, or maintaining possibly? Yeah, maybe there's an argument for that, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, is there an argument for you know some weird stuff to do for four to six months after a show fuck man like i don't even know where to begin with that you just never can compete once every three years or something like that at that point um and a lot of the natural bodybuilder community seems to like to diet for like 40 fucking weeks at a time anyway which i don't understand how you can't fuck up your hormonal shit uh, doing it that long that's another thing that Jared Feather and I in particular are really passionate about uh, having a controversy, you know, having a good discussion about is we yeah. just don't really have no idea how the hell you can die for like, you know, basically a year um, uh, and, and, we'll and that be a defensible practice. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's, I'm not sure either how it became, I don't know really how it became the way to do things, but there are, I don't think it is, I think it's becoming slowly less of a favorable approach there's definitely still people that take it and i certainly took it for my first show and to say it's been a revelation this time round is an understatement um oh really yeah it's it's been incredible um so i will have to dieting get... shorter you mean yes uh completely just basically having more periods of kind of breaking from the diet and realizing that it's not like a you have to you, you're this fat and you have to get to this shredded and it just has to happen in this mm. you've got this amount of time mm-hmm. If you can physically drop in periods of time where you're not dieting, that sort of thing. Um, even like the revelation of a lot of people think about the fact you can gain muscle, you must have a year off season and must be massing the entire time. It's like, well, actually, muscle gain doesn't happen in such a tiny vacuum. Kind of, you can do it like a month massing isn't just complete time wasted. There's other things mm-hmm. that that's also going to benefit you with kind of reducing diet fatigue and things like that. So, yeah. Um, I will have to get you and Jared on to kind of talk about, yeah, the reason long preps aren't maybe ideal and get your guys sure. take on the best way possibly to do things. That'd be really, really sure. interesting. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, sounds good. Um, I'll get on to the next question because I think we covered that really well from Dan Attino, who's asked, is there any evidence you know of that functional overreaching results in more growth than continued progression? or any research supporting prolonged AMPK elevation phenomenon dominating over mTOR. He's trying to understand your recommendations regarding intentional arbitrary deloads and for intentionally stopping mass phases simply for anabolic signaling. So you should, in fact, have planned deloads and low volume phases so you can resensitize for hypertrophic processes. Yeah, there's definitely research on the second one for sure. and there's a paper that one of my friends sent me a couple months ago. There's a huge review on all the anabolic, catabolic signaling pathways and responses to diet and training, et cetera. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe I'll send that to you, Steve, or something like that, and you can post it. Um, yeah. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't particularly enjoy the research monkey thing. Um, like, are you aware of any research? Yes. Where is it? I don't know. Fuck, man. It's in my inbox like from three years ago. Like, you have Google. It would be like to say I, I would Google it just like you would basically. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, luckily, I think I have this one on hand. Um, the – what was the first part of the question again? Any evidence for functional overreaching? Yeah. I'm not aware of any direct evidence for functional overreaching's effect on hypertrophy, but we do have some good ideas that that extreme disruptions can lead to more satellite cell proliferation. So there's some basic understanding there. I will say this. They haven't studied any kind of performance outcome yet that I'm aware of in which functional overreaching didn't result in performance improvements. Functional overreaching uh, has been practiced in endurance athletics for decades. It's been practiced in strength power sports for decades. Uh, it's been practiced in team sports with technique for decades. Um, it works everywhere it's been studied. If it didn't work in hypertrophy, so now we have two things. It works everywhere else, and we have indirect evidence of working for hypertrophy. Um, and remember that evidence-based practice isn't simply you know read PubMed and write programs. It is do your best guess, guess, yep, estimation at what is the reality that we're working with and train to that reality. So I think that uh, that's one of those situations where, yeah, if I had to gamble, myself and uh, Brad Schoenfeld are very much agreed on this matter. Like, we probably think it's a real thing. Yeah. And it would it would suck to be like, well, that's clearly not an evidence, so I'm not going to do it. Okay, don't 
Um, and then when you find out 10 years later that their studies came out that shows it isn't evidence, you'll be like, wow, I look, I like pissed away 10 years. And somebody can ask you, you really, do you, you really use your best judgment and probabilities? Um, and, and, uh, you'd be like, no, I'm like, what the fuck did you do that? Like, well, I don't do anything that's not an evidence. But like, well, there's different kinds of evidence and mm-hmm. there's some, there's pretty, you know, for, for example, like, you know, you, you walk outside and, and, uh, you know, there's a guy running away with like a mask on and he has a gun and there's a person bleeding on the yeah. ground. I, you didn't see them shoot that person, but I, you know, what's your best guess to be like, oh, I have no idea. I need to see evidence. Fuck you. You're an idiot. Fuck out of here. Like you're not good for police work or being a human being the regard his own safety. So I think we have to use all the evidence available. Even if some of it's indirect is one of the things that uh, Meadow is really good at ranting about like Bayesian approach, yeah. which is just using logic and evidence, not just one of the other uh, to come to a likely conclusion. Yeah. Um, so I think that's one of those. There are many other reasons for doing pre-programmed deloads. I wouldn't call them arbitrary. Um, uh, and uh, one of them is that uh, – so, so versus auto-regulation, right? The recovery book that we're finishing up now, we have a whole discussion about deloading versus auto-regulation and how both need to be planned, you know, put into a program. One of the best uses of a deload is that you cannot feel disruptions to tendons, bones, and largely to muscles. You can't feel when your tendons are afraid. There are 50 trillion stories of powerlifters benching, feeling great, pet comes right off. And they do an MRI on both tendons and they go, well, the other tendon's about 10% uh, there. And they're like, how the fuck did I know that? Well, your tendon's largely not innervated whatsoever. You can't feel tendon pain unless the shit comes off. And funny enough, when it comes off, the tendon isn't even what hurts. People don't really report that when they, they pull their bicep off their bone, they don't even report pain like after where the tendon ripped. They report the cramping because the muscle is contracting wow. in on itself. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's something you're never going to feel. So it's one of those situations where if you purely auto-regulate, and I, I mean this you know, with all due respect for auto-regulation, I think it's a great practice that must be integrated. But if you only ever auto-regulate, you never take pre-planned reductions of volume and intensity, you will consistently – be so strong that you will predictably hurt yourself. That's a great way to make sure everything's stronger and stronger and stronger, but the things you can't tell are getting weaker, like tendons, etc. They're getting weaker the whole time after a while. Uh, and that's a big part of deloading and, and active rest phases is for the stuff that you can't feel. Um, AMPK, mTOR, and I'll send that paper over, is another one of those, the catabolic and anabolic regulators. You can tell somewhat what's going on based on what kind of pumps you're getting, rates of progress. Um, But after a while, you know, you really want to make sure you take the low volume phases or the active rest phases early so that – or in advance rather so that you don't come to find that the last three months of your training felt like shit. Nothing's happening. Everything sucks. And then you get hurt. Yeah. How's autoregulation handling for you then? You know, uh, you know – it, auto-regulation and, and pre-planned deloading is, is it's one of those things like um, let's say the oil light in your car is broken so you don't really know when to get oil and you go to the dealership and you're like fuck it and the light's broken you're like that's actually going to cost a lot of money surprisingly to fix the light I know it's weird but I'll tell you what like every 10,000 miles you need to change your oil uh, you got to go change your oil every 9,000 miles it's going to suck yeah. you, you know you read the odometer you know, I wish I didn't have to change my oil there's no light for that fucking thing. If there was a light, we could auto-regulate it. But there is no light. You know, you have no idea if your tendons are frayed. None. Yeah. How does that even feel? Ask somebody, how do you know if your tendons are frayed? You have no idea. Uh, all it takes is getting under that squat bar one last time, and boom, quad tendon comes off. And you're like, well, how do you feel? And, and this is magnified, before anyone says anything ridiculous, uh, in response to this, is magnified if you use anabolic drugs. Many a bodybuilder using drugs has snapped both of their quad tendons off doing hack squats and leg presses. Not even stupidly, just doing them, and boom, they both come off. How? Because if you auto-regulate on enough drugs, you never feel bad. You never deload, and you're like, well, I'm auto-regulating. So it wasn't the last time you had a volume intensity reduction. Well, uh, six months ago, I think. I've just been hitting PRs all the time. Like, get ready to get fucked right now, and then boom, tendon goes, right? So there's uh, auto-regulation is great, but it has limits based on what you're able to detect, and you cannot detect every physiological process. Mm -hmm. I think just from a personal anecdotal perspective, I've tried both and I've done it with clients and kind of it's the progression I've seen via having the actual deloads in place has been better. 
and I've actually had you have more of a goal in mind kind of like you know the deload's coming so you know you can work really hard you actually end up working a bit harder and I just say for anyone who isn't convinced maybe just try both for themselves see how results go Um, but I very much view it as like some like you have a regular check with your doctor rather than maybe going and just randomly seeing them or kind of when you feel bad you go and see totally. the doctor so sometimes you can't feel these things cropping up or you don't know something bad is happening and sometimes they find something really important uh, that that's a great stopped, analogy stopped before so that's not even an analogy that's a direct example yeah. of undetectable <laughs> physiological processes that you should be attending to but you're not yeah it's now made me think i should go see my doctor <laughs> Yeah, which it's, it's, I'll tell you this. Here's another quick, quick analogy too. It's also physiological. Sleep. You know from past experience, <clears throat> about eight hours of sleep per night, let's say in your case, is what you need. The other way to do sleep is so that's pre-programmed sleep. Like you know, at 10 p.m., I'm going to go to sleep. Okay, you go to sleep. You wake up, whatever, eight hours later, and you're fine. You could auto auto regulate sleep where you're like, hmm, I don't feel tired yet. And you don't go to sleep until you're tired and you have to wake up at the alarm anyway. And you're like, oh, that was not enough sleep. I'm going to sleep longer this next night. And you end up kind of getting the worst of both worlds where you end up not sleeping enough here and sleeping too much there. And if you just pre-planned it, you would know in advance not to wade in. Because here's the thing about auto-regulation. It's a really good practice for things that are best auto-regulated. But some things, as soon as you start wading into them, even when you, even if they're detectable, by the time they're detected, they're already fucking you up and yeah. have been. So, uh, you know, the good thing about like auto-regulating with something like performance is that, you know, performance is pretty sensitive to how your physiology is responding. So if your performance is going down the drain, then, you know, you you can kind of be pretty certain that, okay, it's time to deload, et cetera. But there are other indices that, you know, if they're – because people say like, you know – so, for example, people say, like, what do you think about um, heart rate variability and all this other stuff, um, heart rate variables, and there's a couple of them. The general feeling that I've gotten, speaking to most sports scientists, and I, I'm actually personal friends with a lot of people who are monitoring experts, which I am not, athlete monitoring experts, they say, you know, heart rate stuff is great, but you got to have excellent compliance with it. It's usually best for a team of athletes to look at team averages. And also, by the time heart rate variability is detectably off, that athlete has been fucked for weeks. So it's like, yeah, you can auto-regulate with that if you want, but Jesus, you're going to be missing a whole lot of bad signs. So it's one of those situations where auto-regulating has to be done with the right variables, and for some variables, only pre-planned stuff is the way to go because you'll yeah. simply, it'll just sneak up on you. Perfect. No, I think that's a great answer. Um, next question is from Daniel Cavarata, and he's asked, what are your thoughts on hyperplasia for both natural and enhanced populations? No idea. I mean, none. Um, People keep saying that growth hormone use causes hyperplasia. I know of no human studies uh, to that effect. Um, It happens in birds and shit, but all kinds of weird shit happens in birds. Um, no joke. Like they get all kinds of interesting adaptations that we don't, um, and vice versa. Um, uh, it, it was hyperplasia. The problem with hyperplasia is like really, really difficult to study in vivo, you know, in actual living organisms. You have to count every single fucking nucleus. So how the fuck are you going to do that? Um, they don't have scans like that. You, they do if you pull out all the muscles, but then you pull out the muscle and it's dead. How the fuck are you supposed to count it? tough um i don't know about hyperplasia in drug-free people does it happen i know hyperplasia occurs in the developmental span of a human being and occurs in the womb it occurs i think uh, in puberty to some extent does it occur in adult training conditions some people have theorized that hyperplasia may occur under superlatively stimulative conditions maybe um i'm really not sure and that's one of those like i really hope there's some good ideas about it sooner than later mm-hmm. i'd really like to know people keep saying growth hormone at, at high doses causes hyperplasia if that's the case jesus christ i'm about to, <laughs> about to ramp it up but uh i'm not sure if that's the case so who knows absolutely fair enough um i think the audience always appreciate when you're just honest that i mean if you don't know you don't know so um totally to i'll be. tell you this if, if anyone listening uh, if, if someone says growth hormone causes hyperplasia or this and that training causes hyperplasia, 
um, just politely ask them, like, that sounds really interesting. Like, is there anywhere I can read more about those? Yeah. Uh, I'd like to see that trip. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, we'll get on to Ryan Solomon's question, who has asked, do people in their first few years of training need resensitization phases uh, since they're already so sensitive to training? Not many. No. Yeah. No, not not as much. It's one of those things where, as I, I don't want to make, uh, I don't like to make absolute statements yeah. generally. But uh, do they need fewer of them? Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Um, you might be able to train for a whole year, and then after a year, you might be like, you know, it's summer or something. You may be like, yeah, go go fuck around with your friends. You're in college or high school or something. Um, have fun, play around, train with weights a little bit, and then yeah. come back and start training again. Um, but you know, a whole year of hard training without a resensitization phase to a more advanced athlete would be suicide. Yeah. Um, so it's one of those things where less, for sure, much less. And, and for very, very beginners, there's nothing to resensitize, for sure. I guess, would there be a case of, if you did use it, it's not like it's gonna be negative. Would no. that be a case? So if- Totally. And sometimes life just acts as a resensitization yeah. phase anyway. So uh, no real downsides other than delaying gains by a month or something like that, which in the grand scheme doesn't mean shit. So and it also will probably reduce injury probabilities. But I think deloading and stuff takes care of most of that for beginners. Mm-hmm. So, Perfect. Uh, Abel Kasabi has asked, I'd be curious to hear um, him defending his stance on muscle damage and soreness being indicative of hypertrophy um, because – he said, just recently heard some smart evidence-based folks touting that muscle damage is more of a byproduct of training that may interfere with muscle gains as opposed to something we should actively seek out. And I think this has become quite kind of on social media. I've seen it kind of touted quite a lot recently. And I know you went over it during the hypertrophy seminar when you came over to London. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's Mena Henselman. Uh, even you, you, I don't know if you actually debated him on this topic. Um, Brad Schoenfeld ended up debating him on his ah, topic. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know, yeah, Menno's kind of touted, I believe, that kind of muscle damage isn't something that's even of, of benefit. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe he's right. Um, I don't think he's right, but mm-hmm. he could be. Um, the thing about the damage and growth thing is there are some real. So first, we have to take a theoretical consideration. One, is it possible that training causes so much damage that your body spends most of its resources healing damage and the stimulus is too great, too far over MRV or whatever um, to cause an adaptive response? Absolutely. Where do we see such a scenario play out regularly? In beginners, in most studies with weight training. They start out, rank beginners with... 12 sets of squats per week that's fucking insane the first time i ever did three sets of squats my first true three sets of squats i was already a well-trained wrestler i had lots of running under my belt i was not untrained in the sense that most of these individuals are in the laboratory so i was relatively damage resistant i did three sets of six in a squat at 185 pounds my science teacher made me squat because he called me a little bitch for only training upper body and doing leg presses and that was Wednesday. The American holiday of Thanksgiving was Thursday. And I remember I couldn't get off the porch, which was like a third of a meter off the ground, maybe a quarter of a meter off the ground, because I was so sore, I was afraid that if I stepped down, my quads would just blow up. Like I was just like crawling down, that was pathetic. That was an unbelievable degree of DOMS that I got for a week. So when you have these studies where people start training with full loading, because the researchers don't want to bother with ramping up the loading, as far as set numbers are concerned, even though they ramp up the intensities, um, the amount of muscle damage you see in the first several weeks is literally medically significant. It's clinically right. significant. And most of the early research on DOMS was, you know, there's a, Patricia Clarkson wrote a, wrote a review on DOMS with the etiology of delayed onset muscle soreness. We're literally treating like a medical condition because in that extent, it is a fucking medical condition. Um, is that much damage a good idea? Almost certainly not. <laughs> uh, is now so? Let, let's say we're making the case that zero damage is the best way to go about getting hypertrophy. Well, I'm going to have a real uphill battle with that. 
Because if we list out the kinds of training practices in the laboratory and in, in real life that tend to correlate with growth the most, they all also cause damage. Yeah. All of them. Metabolite training causes damage, causes soreness. Increasing your volumes causes soreness, causes damage. Using heavier weights than you used to causes soreness, causes damage. Stretch under load really fucks you up. Independent stimulator of hypertrophy. Eccentric focus causes damage, causes hypertrophy. You literally run the entire gamut. Increasing uh, training frequency means you're more sore more often <laughs> or all the fucking time. In, you know, you're filling. So basically, like, you know, if you used to squat twice a week with a certain set numbers and add in another training day, now instead of being okay on two days of the week, you're never okay and you're always sort of sore or something like that or to some extent. And that seems to increase hypertrophy as well. So if we're making the argument that damage has nothing to do with growth whatsoever, I'm not really sure what kind of training uh, recommendations you would derive from that. Um, on the other hand, if we make the recommendation that um, there is um, an intermediate amount of damage that is good, that too little damage, uh, again, we can use evolutionary sort of pseudo-logic, but it's kind of predictive of most things. Um, why the fuck would your body adapt to no physical disruption whatsoever? Yeah. If nothing was broken, why the fuck would your body try to fix it? It, just, it basically doesn't do that with any other physical systems. It's wholly uninterested. You know, like if... If you are – somebody says a couple words to you in Spanish, you're like, whatever, I don't give a fuck. But if you're in the Spanish country and you don't understand a goddamn thing, you will learn Spanish really quickly. On the other hand, if you're in a Spanish country and you speak to other people just fine in English and you don't care, there's no disruption, there's no error, there's no problem, you will learn Spanish in life. So uh, it would be really curious if, if damage and disruption had nothing to do with growth. Um, it would be really curious if infinite damage and disruption were infinitely related to growth. And it would be very predictable if there was an intermediate amount of damage that wasn't too much, it wasn't too uh, little, and it probably correlated best with growth. All of the studies I've seen that compare damage and growth directly, including the fucking Dama study. God damn it, stop sending me that fucking study. I've read it back to front. Um, uh, that does not rule out the potential that there is an optimal amount of disruption that is not zero disruption. If you're really, really interested in having zero disruption from training, you have taken away every single effect of training modality, period. Yeah. Forget about deletion and replacement because uh, that's just going to get you sore or, and damaged. Um, forget about novelty of training stimulus. Forget about ramping up too much volume and intensity because that's going to get you fucked up. Um, you, 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 metabolite training is not even on the table. Eccentric uh, accentuated training is off. Um, you just taken away every single effective training strategy you have. So um, now is there a grain of truth there to where like if, if you use those excessively and too much and you get too sore, too damaged, will there be a problem? To I totally agree with that. Yeah. But to say that there is um, – they would say that the – first of all, to say that there's enough empirical evidence to say that damage has no relationship to growth is just make-believe. Yeah. Um, it's using one study interpreted quite poorly to suggest something that is contradictory to most other physiological realities that we're familiar with. It contradicts almost all practice. Um, and uh, I'm really not interested in people who who say or in, in, in the statement of, well, soreness and muscle getting sore doesn't mean anything. Well, it means at least one thing, that you're for sure targeting that fucking muscle. Yeah. So when you say, oh, I'm doing lunges and I can feel it in my glutes, how can you feel it? Well, they're sore later. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Well, of course, it fucking means something. It means you hit your glutes. Now, if they're radically sore, you're probably doing too much and yeah. you could do fewer lunges and get a great benefit. But if you're like, yeah, lunges are great for glutes and you're literally like, my glutes have never been sore or pumped or anything during lunges. And they're like, oh, don't worry, they're still hitting your glutes. Like, mm -hmm. really? You sure? So I think that, you know, damage and soreness uh a, a sort of damage and damage and growth are probably related and i i my guess is that damage uh in some direct mechanistic way actually leads to growth mm -hmm. um and if it doesn't it sure as hell is a pretty good proxy for training hard enough to cause both damage and growth so at the very least it's a good proxy i think i think that if you set your sights on getting intermediately sore in the muscle groups you have that do get sore, I think we get the best gains. Mm -hmm. I think if you set your sights on never being sore, 
If you're going to engineer fucking dick for games altogether, be like, oh, well, time to leave the gym, folks. Don't yeah. want to get sore. All right, see you later. So you're, you're doing one third of all you need to. And on the other hand, if you're like a sore chasing monkey and you're like, I literally won't want to walk ever again. This <laughs> is going to be amazing. Like you're going too far and that's probably a bad, a bad idea. Yeah. No, I, I, I guess the only way to do it would be to take anti-inflammatories the entire time and uh, – but that's been shown to reduce adaptation. Oh shit! I, guess. I wonder why. That's fucking <laughs> weird, huh? Um, that's it's every night. Every time I recant the evidence against this, I always forget that, or I always forget one or two things. That's one of them. Anti-inflammatory drugs directly impinge on adaptation, and as a matter of fact, they actually do this in tendons as well. You actually heal from injuries less profoundly if you wow. overdo the anti-inflammatories, um, which is why nowadays uh, medical practice is starting to say, yeah, you know, use the anti-inflammatories as needed, but don't just pop them all. The time because it actually interferes with injury healing and it certainly interferes with hypertrophy curiously enough anti-inflammatories in some populations particularly very old adults who have been subject to quite a bit of training enhance the hypertrophic response mm, how the fuck would that be oh wait their inherent levels of inflammation are higher the amount of damage they get from training is way more because they're not used to it and their adaptive windows aren't as big. So if you have, give them anti-inflammatories, it brings them back into that golden intermediate damage window and they progress. Otherwise, that wouldn't make any damn sense. How the fuck do the mechanisms flip over, right? Mm -hmm. So we want a certain amount of damage and disruption. Usually for most people, anti-inflammatories take away some of that and take away too much and you get less growth. But for individuals that are chronically more inflamed or doing way too much outside of their abilities to recover, they may actually benefit from anti-inflammatory use in a particular time. So uh, that's another one. The anti-inflammatory thing is, is a pretty big deal as far as an argument is concerned. Yeah. Like if you really don't think it has anything to do with damage, how the fuck come that shit that makes the damage, uh, masks the damage, so to speak, or doesn't allow the uh, same pathways that lead to DOMS to express themselves, how come that fucking inhibits growth? Mm -hmm. It's curious. It's curious for sure. I guess from my angle, well, from my perspective, when I hear your arguments for it, it's taking the evidence as a whole and also considering the populations in question, which I think sometimes people draw conclusions without necessarily doing all of that, which is, I mean, it's evidence-based practice. So, um, yeah, I think that's, I, I, th I think it's a terrific argument. Um, he has another question uh, mm -hmm. asking, wonder what his thoughts are on looking at training volume in a number oh, of hard sets, sorry, as opposed to reps per session plus training frequency. Um, so he's, yeah, just wonders what your thoughts are on looking at training volume in number of hard sets. Man, I, I, I didn't think I'd ever get that question um, after a year ago. Um, Greg Knuckles pretty much came up with that, and I pretty much popularized that. So... When I first read it, I thought Greg was almost entirely correct. I, yeah. you know, within within a certain rep range, anywhere between five and fifteen reps for sure, maybe even five and twenty total hard sets is roughly equivalent to hypertrophic outcomes. Um, so uh, I think it's great. I can't yeah. believe somebody actually asked me that. It's like, Mike, what do you think of the MRV concept? And you're like, fuck <laughs> that. It's made by some charlatan asshole Jew, by the way. So it's all the bad things. So anyway, yeah, uh, yeah, I think it's great. That's what I mean. I guess that's what mrv is it's the number of hard sets you can actually do usually totally usually that's how we express it now it yeah. can be expressed as far as total volume but the the reason i chose not to the reason i was really thankful greg came up with that hard sets thing i think he came up with it um, um so. is that it, it, yeah yeah it just uh, yeah, it's boy what a great shorthand it is for just talking to people because uh, you know man i i am I'm uh, around weightlifters a lot. I used to be much more uh, when I was uh, helping with Olympic Training Center and stuff like that. And, and sometimes they speak in kilograms of total loading per week. That right. shit's like nonsense, man. Yeah. It might as well be Greek, you know. Uh, like, oh, yeah, I'm doing 10,000 kilos this week or whatever. I'm like, what the fuck is that a lot? Yeah. My calculator out. Like, how many snatches? You know what I mean? But if you're like, yeah, I did like 10 sets of snatches this week at, you know, 90% plus, I'm like, oh, I see. That makes some goddamn intuitive sense. So, No, I think it's, it's actually – and a really interesting i don't think many people think about it they think about volume they think about sets times reps they think about volume load sets times reps time load and then which is great which it is and i think for powerlifters especially and probably weightlifters as well it has like more applicability but someone like a bodybuilder who's doing so many different movements it just becomes a bit difficult so the hard totally sets, 
yeah, totally makes complete sense to me. Here's another one. It's like, what, what, how do you factor in cable tricep extension? Like, <laughs> what's the distance on that? Like, who the fuck knows? Are you going to measure everything? Like, that's nonsense, right? At some point, you need a workable proxy that works pretty well, and the variation that it misses is swallowed up by other more important training variables. Yeah. Like, how you feel day to day is probably more variation than if you're factoring in tricep extension sets versus skull crusher sets or something like that. Perfect. Um, time for one more question. Yeah, what time is it? Uh, it is just two minutes to the next hour. So yeah, absolutely. Cool. Uh, so we'll go to Elkie's question because um, Abel had three questions, but I, I think Elkie wants to ask you. Um, said, and this is quite an interesting one. She said it's one of those standard ones. He's, she said, where do you see yourself in five and ten years time? Um, so it's quite a different question for you. So yeah, where do you see yourself in five and ten years time? Have you even thought that far ahead, Mike? I, I absolutely awesome. I'll tell you, I tell you exactly where I see myself in 10 years time. You, Steve Hall will be giving a talk as the new heir, the leader to the dystopian combination, fascist, socialist, Maoist revolutionary force. That's now taken over the world. <laughs> and I'll be on a cell phone calling your earpiece. Cause everyone will have earpieces by then. <laughs> And you'll be giving the speech, and you'll be like, oh, hold on a second, when you call me your piece? And you'll be like, what's that? And it'll be like, hey, Steve, you look better in red, and there's going to be a red dot in your forehead, and boom, I'm at a skyscraper two miles out, one shot, one kill, my friend, <laughs> and I save the world from your wrath. Revive stronger. That's how it started and ended with global tyranny. That's uh, How do you even come up with such crazy concepts? I have no plans I'm nuts for that. to begin with. I'm not seeing these. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, like, let me just restate Shit. to our viewers, I have no plans for world domination. <laughs> you start like filing papers away on your desk. Like, <laughs> um, what's it? Yeah, that's actually an interesting question. You know, I, I, I do have, I guess, some insight on this. Um, I have spent the entire fraction of my life that has been productive in setting short-term goals that are definitive and long-term hazy uh, attitudes versus or directions versus goals. So my goal in the next five years is to get bigger and leaner and to understand more and more and more about how training works and how diet works. It is also to try to help Nick produce the best content possible for renaissance periodization and lead our company to helping more people um, with fitness endeavors and reduce the confusion in the industry and increase the awareness of realities and let people do more with less that's that's it man uh that's my five-year plan that's just probably my 10-year plan uh, <laughs> with 10 years a bit different because maybe by then I won't be uh, bodybuilding anymore and I'll lose a bunch of weight and just do jujitsu, but that's a bit longer. But the five-year plan is just do good. Um, and intermediately I have like three books that I'm writing and a bunch of, um, other projects that we're working on. So I always have stuff to do intermediately, but we're just, just trying to do a good job, man. I don't, um, I never really made long-term plans, plans because so much can change, you know, with life and stuff and, um, people say like, you know, where are you going to be living? And people give answers. Oh, fuck. I don't know where I'm going to be living. I don't know. Who knows? So, um, I just try and do a good job, um, and learn more. Uh, and hopefully in the next five years, I can get uh, a book out about hypertrophy training principles. Um, awesome. uh, and I got to learn more for that stuff. Cause every time I think I have shit figured out, there's another piece of the puzzle that's just new. And I'm like, ah, fuck, I should probably get that figured out before I put out a book. Um, so maybe that'll happen and that could be cool. But, uh, other than that, you know, that's it. Well, I mean, just to hear that, I mean, for people listening, they want that hypertrophy book now. And I mean, I want it, but to hear, so that do I. <laughs> I mean, to hear that you're still figuring out and seeing pieces of the puddle puzzle is incredibly exciting to me, at least. Um, because that means there's still more to learn, more more gains to always. be made, um, which is very, I think it will always be something that's developing. Maybe you can release one and say that you can have new additions, uh, remakes. Oh, we'll definitely like that. do that. But I, I, well, I'm, I'm going to say that I, I don't even know enough yet to put down a real decent book. Um, maybe in the next one or two years that'll happen. But for, for now, it's we're not there yet. 
I think I could write a, write a book from your uh, Facebook posts and podcasts. So uh, I might just do that. Just get there. You go, man. Be like, <laughs> there you this go. Is, this is going to be Mike's book anyway. That's um, it, Mike's book uh, from from the future. <laughs> but I actually think that was a brilliant answer. And I think if people ask me, I'm very much the same. I don't have like big, massive business plans. It's just more doing what I'm doing, trying to grow and develop. And I think we got asked quite a similar question at at the conference over in London, and it was just. Yeah, to hear you talk about it and the, the fact is you just want to help people you haven't got any kind of weird side business like you don't want to be a millionaire billionaire earning tons of money and just taking people for what they've got hey listen man if it happens a, <laughs> yeah listen so here's the deal um uh, we don't we're not going to sell out at renaissance or sell out such a shitty term we're not going to start lying to people to make a quick buck exactly we are very interested in money at renaissance periodization we love money it's practically a religion to us <laughs> the thing is the way to get the most money is to give people a fucking awesome deal great products that they can rely on that are not bullshit we don't want you as a customer for Renaissance right now. We want you as a customer for as long as you'll have us because we'll continue to provide good work and we'll never fuck you over. Everything we make, we make to last and we make it so that it works and we make it so that if you find yourself in the market of fitness next year or three months, you come back to us maybe. Um, we don't even think you should come back to us. We should. Th we think you should come back to the best deal from the best companies that are around. Sometimes that's us. Sometimes that's other people. Um, we're going to be striving to continue to provide that best product. That makes us considerable amount of money. It's going to probably make us hopefully more money in the future. That's how you make money, though, is you make good fucking shit. You think yeah. Ford Motor Company is sitting around thinking, how do we fuck people out of money? They've been around for like fucking 100 years. They don't do that. They're like, how do we make a quality? You think you think Steve Jobs and all those iPhone people, uh, Apple, et cetera, are trying to fuck people out of money? <laughs> you kidding me? They're trying to provide you a product. Like When the iPhone, the first iPhone came out, there was no fuckery at all. It was like this thing just left everything behind. Every other cell phone company executive that day was like, well, I'm going to go home and fucking drown myself <laughs> in my own urine. Like – it was just that much better, and and they continue to every single time. Apple just makes better and better yeah. shit. What does Facebook do? Better and better shit. Like, how do you think they run Facebook? They look at exactly what people like. If Facebook could dissect a human being and find out all of their preferences and desires, I guarantee you they would do yeah. that shit immediately. You know, with a proper consent, of course. <laughs> like, my dying wish is to be dissected by Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> himself. But uh, you know, they want to provide you with the best possible fucking experience, so that when someone's like, "Hey, I heard there's this new thing coming out, uh, better than Facebook," you'd be like, "Yeah, that's nice. Whatever. I don't give." <laughs> A shit if it's that good it'll i'm sure it'll pop up but fuck that facebook's the shit so you know when people say like oh i want to like um i want to people people say I, i'm not like i have no idea but i'm not a very good businessman nick shaw is that's what he does yeah but I think I kind of reflect a sentiment where people are like, you've got big goals for a company, you know, hashtag 2018, the takeover and shit like that. Motherfucker, what takeover? Do a good job, provide good products so people will give you money for that shit. Yeah. And on the, on the business side of like reaching out and working with other people, like, yeah, at Renaissance, we're constantly, Nick, 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 not particularly, but Nick almost exclusively is the person to reach out to bigger companies and smaller companies and tries to form partnerships to get more people access to quality goods and services that we have. And yeah, that partnership and strategic stuff is cool but again that's all based on what kind of good shit do you do you do like i was at a business meeting recently in new york city with some big players or whatever and um oh sorry yeah. you still there yeah cool um so you know uh there's like you know um uh, so I was in a business meeting with some big players, et cetera, and you know, we're talking about like how we can cooperate and do this and that and all these cool products. And, and a lot of them were interested in like, so why the fuck are we talking to you and not other people? And I'm like, well, I'm glad, glad you asked this. Here's all the cool shit we've done. And they're like, oh, holy fuck, this is all science-based. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, sure as fuck is. And they're like, one of the things they asked me, I was like, well, what's your philosophy? I'm like, we don't have one. It's like whatever science and best practices are. And they're yeah. like, huh. Okay, that's really good. And we're like, yeah, thanks. So just just keep doing a good job. And when you do engage in – and another thing, like people say like, oh, you got to network. Like, yeah, but you got to be a fucking cool person. A cool by – I mean like you have, have to be able to offer value. If you know, people are like, oh, yeah, I'm going to network with people. What everyone who network finds out you're a fucking valueless scumbag, does this matter? They're just going to yeah. know to stay the fuck away from you. And someone's going to email them and be like, oh, yeah, you know, John contacted me. Should I work with him? And they're like, no, no, that guy fucking sucks. But if you're if you're a great person and you want to create value with other people, you don't have to try to plan to network as much as network is fine. But you being good at what you do is what it comes down to. So I'm very wary. Of, I'm not I'm not wary of people, but I'm very wary of myself of trying to make Napoleonic plans for like you know hashtag 2018 the takeover <laughs> or some shit like. 
we're just doing a good job, man. And and if we're ever swayed from doing that, the you know, only mission is to come back to doing a good job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do that enough, man. Fuck, you know, we've got cool products and services. You might want to buy them. They'll help you out. That's all we have to offer. Uh, and if we keep offering that, you know, money comes along with it. That's well, you're it. definitely doing a good job. I think everyone watching can guarantee that uh, to say the same thing. And one thing you are doing is getting married, right? Yeah, right. And that's not so much of a plan as it is kind of already set in motion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah so I'm getting married uh, to Crystal in 2018 in May or something like that. Yeah. Um, it's a cool thing. I'm excited to call her my wife. Uh, but also we've been together for long enough and we're intimate enough to where like, you know, marriage doesn't really change much. Yeah. Like I'll put it to you this way. And here's some uh, shitty life advice for a person who probably shouldn't be giving it. Um, if you're going to feel way different after being married than before being married, uh, you probably should have gotten that know that person better. Yeah. If, if being married is almost like a really fun formality to you, because that person, you, you look at, I can look at Crystal, I'm like, she's going to be with me the rest of my life. Married, not married, call her whatever. She's still going to be around. I'm still going to care for her. Then once you get married, you're like, I mean, like what are we going to do? We're going to get married, then we're going to go to a hotel room after and be like, oh, this is different. Like, it's not different at all. It's like Tuesday. You know what I mean? Like, what the fuck are we talking about? So it's one of those things. Like, I, even with marriage, it's a big deal. But the stepping stones and the uh, to that, it's one of those that by the time it's a decision, it's kind of obvious. You know? No, I think that that's see that's good. I think that's good life advice. Um, and I'll, I'll let you go because I've kept you long enough on on this question as well. So. Um, just from me and all the listeners want to say a massive thank you again for a brilliant Q&A and uh, yeah we will hopefully see you soon again cheers guys for listening and thank you Mike for coming on thank you so much